Hi, this is Steve. Fans have been a part of Hollywood since the beginning. Teenage girls swooned over Rudolph Valentino and Douglas Fairbanks, and nobody was more beloved than America's sweetheart, Mary Pickford. Since then, there have always been stars whose popularity was so powerful that it seemed as if they would go on forever. Until, of course, it didn't. And then the fans who were so obsessed one day turned their attention to a rising star, leaving that other actor to wonder what exactly just happened. But there is another kind of fan out there, one connected not to a particular performer, but rather to a fictional character, world, or even idea. The first and most important example, at least in terms of copyright, is Disney's Mickey Mouse, whose simple design has delighted generations long after its original creators were gone. Superman has found his way onto every kind of media and merchandise since his debut in 1938. And while we might all have our favorite James Bond, it is the character, not the actor, that keeps the fans coming back for more. Of course, in all those cases, it was the corporate owners that kept those characters alive. Not for any altruistic reason, of course, but simply because they saw them as money-making machines. Star Trek, on the other hand, is different. Paramount and NBC thought Star Trek was worthless, a failed TV show who barely made it to a third season. It didn't even have the 100 episodes usually required for syndication. Star Trek was, in 1969, essentially dead. It was the fans that kept Star Trek alive. With only 79 episodes in the can, many of them not exactly great, Star Trek became one of the most popular shows in syndication. And that's not all. There were conventions, fan fiction, merchandise. This wasn't a case of a studio trying to squeeze every dime out of their intellectual property. This was a case of fans who wouldn't let an idea they loved die. It was the fans who kept Star Trek alive, and in many ways, it was the so-called Trekkies who predicted the direction Hollywood has gone in the 21st century, with its intense, symbiotic, and often tumultuous relationship between the powerful corporate owners of our favorite worlds and the fans who believe those characters and worlds belong to them. All of this and more will be covered in part two of our discussion of Star Trek The Motion Picture with special guest Scott Mance this Friday on the cinephiles. Jim, it's asking questions. What questions? Is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? Hello and welcome once again to the Cinephiles, where this week we continue our exploration of Star Trek The Motion Picture. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, producer, writer, and host and critic now all of a sudden. Albright Collider Video uh, and co-host of the Top Ten Show, the Geek Buddies, and a proud host of... Uh, at the deep cut over there on Collider Conversations feed, and I can't tell you how excited I am to come back in to the Enterprise, to come aboard the Enterprise one more time to finish out this movie. And of course, we couldn't possibly course. talk about Star Trek without our good friend Scott Mance coming back to the cinephiles once again. Thank you for joining us on the Bridge of the Enterprise. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me back. Permission to come aboard. Permission granted. Permission granted. Permission granted. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, and I believe when we left the Enterprise, uh, Mr. Spock had just rejoined the crew, mm. but he was not quite the Mr. Spock that we had grown used to in the series. He was a bit of a cold fish. He wasn't the only one. Oh. I mean, up to this point, basically everyone that we 
grew up loving on the original Star Trek, no one's really playing the the characters that we love, except maybe Dr. McCoy, you know, Bones. He's, right, yeah, right. he's irascible, you know, he's challenging challenging Kirk, and, and the first thing he says to Spock is like a backhanded compliment, you know, so help me, I'm so happy to see you. Uh, but but that's, that. I said this in part one, that this dynamic works. It makes sense. You know, they haven't been together chronologically in two and a half years. Mm. And, and, you know, uh, in our world, it's been 10 years since the end of the original series. But chronologically, it makes sense that they would be, they would have to rediscover their relationship because they, yeah. they've all gone off on their own way and now they're thrust back. Uh, really forced back together on an enterprise that they are not familiar with. And each one on their own separate journeys. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So entrenched in their own separate journeys. Bones, relaxing, the beard, everything. I don't have to deal with that crap anymore with the Federation and the Starship Enterprise. Spock, trying to remove emotion. Kirk, a ball of frustration that he cannot command a starship again. It's interesting that Kirk and Spock are unsatisfied. Yes. Bones was probably fine. Bones, Bones was happy. Bones is always the happiest <laughs> one. In the original uh, teleplay of In Thy Image, uh, written by uh, Alan Dean Foster and Harold Livingston for what was supposed to be the pilot episode for a new Star Trek TV series called Star Trek Phase 2. In that version of the story, it's, it's Admiral Kirk who goes to recruit McCoy on his on his at his home uh, and he's a oh, veterinarian I would love to see that he's a, a veterinarian he's uh, not even practicing on on people he's practicing on animals i would love to he's see had that. it he's had it after five years yeah. of the enterprise he's done one other thing that didn't occur to me until you guys just said what you said which is that everything on the enterprise feels different mm -hmm. and at this moment we're about to get something that feels unbelievably the same which is this is the first time we hear the alexander courage score yeah. right after that and we go immediately into captain's log Stardate 7413.4. Thanks to Mr. Spock's timely arrival and assistance, we have the engines rebalanced into full warp capacity. Finally, we hear the Alexander Courage score, but it's just the, it's the first few bars. Yep. Because this is very much a Jerry Goldsmith score. Absolutely. And it's just a tip of the hat because, you know, when he does the, you know, when Kirk does the Captain's Law, that's when it feels like Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And when you hear that theme, that motif from the original theme of Star Trek, uh, it, it reminds, oh, it was like so soothing. But that's finally where we start to, uh, you know, the Enterprise starts to, you know, come back together, so to speak. Absolutely. Is, is the ship moving when he's doing the Star the, the Yes, absolutely. So, so it does fully it's put classic, you back in the yeah, TV show. Classic yeah, Star yeah. Trek stuff. Yeah. And what we hear very quickly is that Mr. Spock figured out the problem with the warp drives, and now we're back on the bridge, and we're easing up into warp speed, and we go into warp speed, and we get a big music theme happening, and everyone's happy. Kirk is a little weak. Yeah, he he gives a little wink to check off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know that that's uh, it was a good moment, and you know 
just all Spock had to do was come back on the ship. He figured out exactly what was wrong, right, and just that—that's like something you would see in the original series. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, he would fix the Enterprise. You know, Scotty would fix the Enterprise, even though he, uh, uh, you know, would would freak out about it. But that was Scotty. That's what you had to do. And Kirk's in a short sleeve shirt now, right? And one of his many many costume changes throughout this, none of which I like. <laughs> By the way, I know you guys like the costumes more. I like the short sleeve. I, I, would I like say the short sleeve's my favorite. I the, think. Between the long sleeve shirt with the white. In the middle, yeah. The, the long sleeve shirt with the blue and the short sleeve shirt. I think the short sleeve shirt looks great because, and an all of the Star Trek feature films, Shatner never looked better than he did in the motion picture. Physically, yes, I physically, agree. yeah. agreed. Yeah. Physically, agreed. like he he had said that he went on a on a real crash diet when uh, when when they were going to start filming uh, the motion picture right. because when he got an idea of what the costumes were going to be. He yeah. had to, yeah. you know, keep matching Shatner like Star Trek Six wearing the uniform yeah. from uh, oh, the motion oh, picture. Forget it's it. rough. I mean, they, I know you know girdles can do a lot, but not <laughs> yeah. quite that much. Um, and now we're gonna have the, really this the kind of scenes that are the heart of Star Trek, which is Spock, Kirk, and McCoy. Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. No, have you, Doctor? As your continued predilection for irrelevancy demonstrates. Only Nimoy can say that line and make it sound natural. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and I love, by the way, that he can't even get Spock to sit down. He's, Would you please sit down? Yeah. And what we find out is that is what we sort of discussed earlier, that he was in the middle of this thing on Vulcan, the Kolinar, and that he felt this presence, and that's why he's here. I believe it may hold my answers. Well, isn't it lucky for you that we just happen to be heading your way? And Kirk says exactly to Spock what he said to McCoy, which is, We need him. I need him. And I think this is this thing we talked about in our last episode, that that Kirk has at least the presence of mind to know that he needs these other people to challenge him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, well, you know, this... this this conversation, like you said, Steve, it, it, it's the it's the triumvirate, it's the it's the trio that you know that with the the scenes between the three of these guys, you know, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly from the original series, the, the scenes with the three of them, like that that was Star Trek. I mean, yeah. no disrespect yeah. to to the other players there, but this was their show. It yeah. was the three of them, not the seven of them. It was the three of them. They were on it every single week, yeah. and this conversation while it does feel like uh it it, it feels like uh if if the vibe of the original series is there but spock something's up with him there's something still up with him uh when spock walks out of the room uh mccoy says to him if this super intelligence is as important to him as he says it is how do we know that he wouldn't put his own interests ahead of the ships i could never believe that I think it's brilliant that they present this, Steve, because and, and Scott, because it's like it's an exposition that isn't clumsy, right? This idea, this narrative that the possible possibility of Spock having his own perspective on this, you know, driven by his own reasons to do what he's doing, because he's coming aboard the Enterprise, he's essentially using the Enterprise to figure out what the hell's going on with this right. consciousness, right? Yeah, he's not back because he wants to be in the Enterprise. Right. right, and you can tell from the beginning, he's very much business, all business. I have to fix this warp drive so I can get to where exactly. I'm going. Yeah. Everything is leading to where his ultimate goal is, which is to confront this consciousness, and later we'll see when he jumps into the jetpack and goes on his own, it is to have this confrontation with this consciousness to understand it. He needs to understand it. Each one driven by something they need to understand, they need to focus on, they need to kind of pursue and so with Spock here, 
And McCoy bringing it up, I think, is brilliant because it puts us as viewers in a mind frame of like, wait, I never thought Spock like, would no, do Spock that. Wouldn't do that. Yeah. Well, well, you're like, okay, well and this is this, this is again where I, I wish we had a little bit more of this oh, development. Fair. You know that's what I mean? Look, like, there's just there are looks, but you don't. There's get looks, but you didn't get another scene. Yeah, you didn't yeah. get a you know. Where, and I was thinking because again, the the comparison between this and Wrath of Khan is so. It's one I'm getting, my brain just keeps going back to. Mm. And if you think about the themes within Ratham Khan of growing old and how many moments in that movie hit on that between the glasses and the book and I feel old, I feel young and the, yeah. you know, all of the, it's over and over and over again. We're hit and the themes of new life and regeneration and death and dealing with death and all those things are hit over and over again in little character moments. Mm. And with this, th- those we have great themes and this is one of them. Can we trust Spock? Right. Is he now driven by something? other than our relationships in the past but we really only hit it like once Hmm. once or twice and we don't it doesn't resonate as powerfully because like this is you know in screenwriting this thing you have to do is like how am i maintaining my theme how am i how am i keeping this tension going and we're going to do a lot of other stuff that's not that all of which looks gorgeous and is is cool but doesn't it doesn't hit me emotionally in the same way that wrath of khan does but what is going to hit us right away is that it's red alert we're there we have gotten to v'ger we haven't heard that name yet standard line engineer full mag on view full mag sir and they're seeing V'ger, you know, seeing the cloud, this is another scene that reminded me a lot of the original series. Mm. You know, one thing that we have not yet talked about with regards to Star Trek The Motion Picture is how similar it is, and this scene in particular, to one of the original series episodes mm-hmm. called The Changeling. That was the one with Nomad. Nomad was a, was a probe sent into space that comes back into, you know, Federation space looking for its creator. Mm. And the scene in the first act, when Nomad is firing on the Enterprise and they're trying to communicate with it, this this whole setup, this whole scene of, of the Enterprise finally seeing the cloud for the first time, mm. it reminded me so much of the Changeling. It is so in lockstep with the Changeling in so many ways. And the story that I've heard, I don't know what you've heard, has always been that they go, they went, Oops, we never thought about that. Right, yeah, yeah. Alan he- Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster. So his his claim to fame with Star Trek was he took episodes of the animated series. Uh. Okay, so he, you know, the animated series had, had already had its two-year, 22-episode run where it won an Emmy for Best Daytime Television Show. It's the Best Children's Show. Right. So in the mid-'70s, uh, Alan Dean Foster wrote novelizations of the animated series episodes. And because, you know, the animated series is only 22 minutes long, Alan Dean Foster had this, this luxury to really flesh out the stories. And, 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 you know, they would have made like fantastic live action episodes. So I think I did like nine or 10 volumes with three episodes a piece uh, in, in each, uh, in each novel. So Roddenberry loved his, uh, you know, he felt like he had a feel for for Star Trek. That's when that's when Roddenberry asked him to write the story 
the story for what eventually became the motion picture. And Alan Dean Foster, because he was so versed, well versed in in the animated series, and that had only seen, in his words now, about seven or eight episodes of the original series, swore he never saw the Changeling. Okay. Do you, because I've heard this from multiple places, like we never thought about the fact that we, it was only when I went back and watched the Changeling again did I realize all the similarities. Do you buy this explanation? I, I buy it because, I mean, the motion picture, it's its not like it's a beat-for-beat beat, right. uh, remake of The Changeling. And look, The, the Changeling uh, was uh, written by John Meredith Lucas. You know, the episode nice. aired in 1967. And uh, and it's a great episode. I mean, it's a it's a it's a terrific episode. I mean, you know, another another great example of Kirk talking a computer into destroying itself. Yeah. Jackson Roy Kirk, your creator, is dead. You have mistaken me for him. You are in error. You did not discover your mistake. You have made two errors. You are flawed and imperfect. And you have not corrected by sterilization. You have made three errors. Error. 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 Examine. You are flawed and imperfect. Execute your prime function. And he kind of does do the same thing with V'ger. I, I don't know. It just is so, I mean, everything about the motion picture, the execution of it is so different. I think that only when I'm told about it or really, really, really think about it do I draw the comparisons to the changeling. But I'm, I'm able to enjoy the motion picture on its own. And I don't think that... I mean, you know, with the way that, that Star Trek fans know every little detail, yeah. that they, they, they must have known, you know, the whole reason they wanted to do something so different was because they wanted to, uh, they, 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 they knew that the fans would be there scrutinizing every little thing. And I, if knowing that, I don't think they, they would have been like, oh, they'll never notice that we're basically taking an episode of the original series and making it into a movie. I have, I, 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 first of all, let me say that I don't know. I have no idea. This is an extremely complicated movie to make with a lot of hands in there. Like, it wouldn't surprise me at all that Robert Wise had never seen The Changeling and knew nothing <laughs> yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but, and the other thing is, is that this had never happened in TV. Nobody had poured over the episodes of Perry Mason to figure figure out when right. the district attorney had used this argument before. Right. No one did that. Like no one looked at every episode of Dragnet or every episode of Gunsmoke to figure out, you know, those things in the way that between 1969 and 1979, we all had with Star Trek yeah. Oh, yeah. like that. So, so this is a unique situation. So first of all, it might not have even occurred to them that anyone would notice. Right. But I do think, and it may be uh, the writer hadn't actually seen that episode and didn't know that. But, I, there are so many people working on this movie that were, were big fans of the show that some of them had to say, hey, fellas. Hello, Nomad. You know, I mean, it's so because there's so many there's so many things where it's like that is kind of exactly what goes on in the Changeling, not just kind of. But. Yeah, like like when when they're on the uh, Enterprise, when they're on the bridge in the motion picture and they're they're starting to get uh, uh, a message from the cloud and they say it's a, it's a binary well, that's what they said in Act One of uh, the Changeling. Yep. You know, Spock goes. He's in a station with the earpiece, and he says, "It's a, it's a form binary." Captain, this message is a sort of binary, extremely sophisticated, compressed, carrying several channels at once. You know, I'm like, well, you know, that's pretty well, similar. And, and in the Changeling, someone gets killed and brought back. 
you know, or yeah. someone gets killed, and then is it Scotty gets his memory Scotty erased? Gets killed. Yeah. Well, Scotty gets killed, brought back, and Uhura gets her memory gets her memory erased. erased. Yeah. So like, there's and both of those things are sort of thematically things that are going to go on as we move forward in this film. I mean, there's a lot that's it's a, it's a very it's not like like the fact that a giant thing is heading towards Earth and must be stopped, which is in several Star Trekky right. things. And we do another one. That doesn't bother me, you know. Like that, we're and you know, we'll do another one probably. But the fact that this specific kind of thing is heading, it, we're interacting with, and this thing has this misconception and has this mission. It's so specific, like this this low powered satellite that gets rebuilt and is now being sent. I mean, it's really specific. Mm. Lead the same. So that's why I'm kind of like somebody had to know. So, I mean, yeah. Well, what are you yeah. going to do if you're a second grip or an AD? What are you going to do? You know what? We got to stop the whole production. <laughs> that is exactly. I'm going to leave my job. And you guys are going to come up with a better script. It's a little again. known clause in the in the union <laughs> rules that. A grip at this motion yeah. can actually stop the entire <laughs> film if he sees that it's plagiarizing right. and all that. It's w- little known, Mr. Wise. I gotta have. I have some issues. I, mean, uh, <laughs> I, right. I, I think that Mr. Wise. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is a from an. I, I don't care. I directed the sound of music. <laughs> Cloud composition, Mr. Spock. Twelve power energy field. Twelve power. Which I don't know what it is, but it sounds really, really powerful. Really powerful. Even turns around. 12th power! Yeah. It is really, really big. And as it sends this message that we don't respond to, we sent all of our friendship messages out. Spock senses something, and what he senses is puzzlement. We have been contacted. Why have we not replied? Contacted. How? Standard on you. Force is up full. Deflectors now. But at this moment, uh, V'ger has responded with that same energy blast that we saw completely wipe out everything else. And it hits the Enterprise and it goes green and the Enterprise survives. Yeah. But barely. Yeah, not Chekhov's arm. Not Chekhov. Yeah. He, by the way, excellent scream excellent from him. Scream. Yes. Well, yeah. No one screamed better in the original series than, than Chekhov. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he screamed in so many. I remember Mirror Mirror, he screamed. Yeah. Uh, you know, he uh, screams in uh, The Way to Eden. I mean, he screams so many times, it's ridiculous. Captain, the intruder has been attempting to communicate. Our previous transmission mode was too primitive to be received. I'm now programming our computer to transmit lingua code at their frequency and rate of speed. And he's busily on his computer as the next giant... Uh, energy thing is coming. <laughs> I love Kirk is great with the Spock. Transmit now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and of course, in all good Star Trek tradition, we get down to fifteen seconds and ten seconds, and at the last possible moment, we transmit the message, and that thing disappears. And they ascertain that that the message has been received and understood. So whatever it is, it is got the message, and it sort of has opened the door for the Enterprise to enter. Opinion, Mister Spock. Recommend we proceed, Captain. Mr. Decker? I advise caution, Captain. We can't withstand another attack. That thing is 20 hours away from Earth. We know nothing about it as yet. Precisely the point, Captain. We don't know what it'll do. Moving into that cloud at this time is an unwarranted gamble. How do you define unwarranted? They are not yeah. getting along. But And, and it's and it's funny, be, and I like this, that this is a very great Star Trek moment, yeah. because... You know, there isn't a right answer. 
Kirk could be wrong. Decker could be wrong. Right. And they and what we see is the difference between two captains. Like if Decker had in fact been the captain of this ship, they would not have gone forward. Yeah, wow. that's a good point. You know, because he would have he would have assessed the risks in a different manner. You know, there's a moment of silence on the bridge when everyone just sort of composes themselves. You know, Kirk is in his command chair, and he says, "Navigator, maintain course, helmsman." And he smiles. Steady as she goes. Like, that was such a great... Like, he said that, those words, steady as she goes, a lot in the original sure. series. And that, you know, he, like that, just that look of comfort. Like, you know, he's, you know, navigator, maintain course, helmsman, steady as she goes. Yeah. That begins, uh, I would say, a six and a half minute <laughs> trip through the cloud. Yeah. Like, we're not even, like, at V'ger yet, or this thing, whatever it is. Now... How do you feel about the cloud? Like, what's your take on it? Like, what was your take when you first saw it? And how do you feel about it now? Were you bored or did you love it from the beginning? I, re I just recall being intimidated by it when I saw it as a younger person um, because it is unknowable. Uh, and then watching it this time, I just enjoyed the um, science fiction aspects of it all and the design. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it still holds up. It doesn't feel dated. And I liked that. Uh, and it still feels all-encompassing and scary as you watch. That's a good point. Like, I don't think the visual effects of this movie are dated. I don't watch this movie and go, yeah, that, that's, yeah, it doesn't hold up. Like, when I watched Superman the movie, which yeah. came out the year before, the flying scenes, yeah, they look, they look dated. Yeah. But the visual effects by the great Douglas Trumbull, who did Close Encounters in, in 2001, I think it holds up. What do you feel about the trip through through the cloud? So you asked first, how did I feel about it when I first saw it? Of course, I can't exactly remember, but my assumption is my mouth was open. I sat back in that seat in that movie theater in just total stunned amazement. And I 100% agree with you. I think these effects totally hold up. Yeah. I think it is spectacular in some ways. And we see a lot of the, I think it's slit lens i forget what the phrase is that was developed in 2001 during the the um stargate the stargate sequence a lot of that technique is being used here but it's at a even i would say a higher level in mm. a lot of ways i think that visually it is absolutely stunning now when i when i was you know uh 11 years old seeing this for the first time yeah. yes i definitely was mesmerized by the visual effects but you know what really did it for me mm. during this trip through the cloud was the music. Yeah, music's great. The music, Jerry Goldsmith's score just really captured the feel of of sublime beauty and the unknown yeah. in equal measure. And joy and terror. Joy joy and terror yeah. and fascination, yeah, fascination and discovery yeah. and the unknown of it all. And you know, visually, again, I, I feel like Trumbull did an amazing job in, in uh, redoing the visual effects, which were – he came in to basically save the movie, and he right. did. But I think uh, that the fact that here we are 40 years later re-watching this film, yeah. and you're going like, huh, this movie still looks effing great. Yep. Well, this is something we talked about. We talked about it when we did 2001. We talked about it with Star Wars. We talked about it with Close Encounters is that the really good effects – Blade Runner, same thing. They age really well. Right. It's the bad effects that don't. You know, it's like if you, you know, it's like if you look at the stop motion in Terminator or Robocop, mm. those don't age very well. Yeah, I agree with that. But Jurassic Park, it still looks really good. You know, yeah. the, the other, like Star Trek V, 
uh, from 1989, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary wow. this year. <laughs> uh, those visual effects were terrible then, and yeah. they're, they're, and they're worse terrible. now. But I still haven't answered your question completely, which is I, I feel the same way that I feel about the shuttle journey, which is that I think it's spectacular, and I think it's too long. You're insane. And, and, and I think, too, again, this is really referencing 2001, is that the shuttle journey to me is referencing yeah. the space docking sequence in 2001, and this is referencing the Stargate uh, sequence. The difference is is that, this, is that in the Stargate sequence, it is an abstract movie where in, things are happening to what's-his-name, uh, you know, and you see his face in those weird Bowman, freeze frames. Yeah. Bowman, that are, are, we don't know what that is. Like, we're going like, what is this? It is this surreal, abstract yeah. thing. Whereas this is it's a lot of our crew of our enterprise looking in wonder over and it's like you know are 17 shots of looking in wonder enough or do we need 19 or 23 or could we have gotten away with 12 and that's where again it's the editor and me goes it's the same thing i feel is like it's not that it's not gorgeous it is gorgeous and the score is amazing but I wanted more Spock and McCoy and Kirk. I wanted more character. I wanted more story. And that this is the price we paid. It's also, by the way, yeah. and I see that you have something to say. No, no, no. It's also, by the way, this movie went ridiculously over budget. Yeah. And this is where it's going over budget right here. Douglas Trumbo, they're way behind on schedule. They have a locked in date that they have to meet. And they are dry spending and spending and spending money. I mean, this is, I think, do you remember what the budget is? $46 million. It's among the most expensive movies ever made at this uh, point. At that time, it certainly was. I mean, like in 1977, Star Wars cost... Uh, about ten and a half million dollars to make. Well, in my memory, is Empire, which is nineteen eighty, is like thirty. That's right. Yeah, so it's twenty-seven is, million. Twenty-seven. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is way more expensive than the. I mean, this is a really, really that, expensive movie. In defense of, in defense of that, though, yeah. some. I mean, I don't know how much, but some of that production cost included the uh, visual effects in the sets and, and the prep that they were doing on Star Trek mm. Phase 2, oh, which true. was rolled into the budget for the film. Now, that's not really fair, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that... I wouldn't say that half of that went to the TV series. I would say that maybe, like, maybe 5 or 10% of it did. But, I, I mean, I agree with you, and I think that Robert Wise also agrees, because when he went back in 2001 to do his director's cut, the trip through the cloud was shortened yeah the trip through the cloud was half the length it was not six minutes it was three and i think it makes for a better film but i i love the trip through the cloud i think too because still it underlines the mystery of what is here and the level and the size of what is here and the overwhelming nature of it all it's never ending it feels oh yeah never ending and because of that, I think subconsciously it works on you to feel like you're getting smaller and smaller as they get further and further into this thing. I, I 100% agree. I think I think that's one of the best things about it. And I think yeah. we see something that I've never seen before. And I don't know if we've even seen it since in Star Trek, which is the really little Enterprise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's yeah. so great where you really get the scale. Yeah. When you finally, when the, the Enterprise finally gets through the cloud and they're looking at the view screen, and they finally see something, a physical presence, not just a cloud anymore, but they finally see, like, uh, uh, and they, they don't see it too clearly, but they see enough of it to be awed and uh, kind of have their minds blown at the size of this this big, massive, huge right. vessel that you're right. When you see the Enterprise move forward and, on, you know, you, when you see the aerial shot looking down on the Enterprise, it's this teeny, tiny little thing. Yeah. 
Want to hear what uh, Jack said as we're watching this? What's this is that? My, my eight-year-old son. Because remember I said that he was totally wrapped and into it? He said, it looks like a machine and like a creature. Like it took all the spaceships it destroyed and combined them into one. Well, a hell of an observation, yeah. right? Jack. I was yeah. like, look, I don't normally do the like my kid is to do whatever, but I was like <laughs> that particular line. I was like, dude, you're really yeah, he's on you're, you're on the point for this film, yeah. And then, intruder alert! Oh, here we go. Yes. This is a awesome sequence. It's great. I think it's a great sequence. Still works. Still terrifying. Really scary. And and just like this is so. Beyond anything we'd seen in the series, in terms of the fear that it induces when you watch, and it's it's overpowering. Yes, this uh, this probe sent in to the Enterprise bridge, which is bl- the light is blinding, yeah. and that the noise, the noise is is just piercing yep. their ears and piercing ours, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it starts to go through the records of the Enterprise, uh, looking through the history of Starfleet. And uh, and checking the Earth's defenses, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Um, and and this is like this is where I think you really see Robert Wise, the master filmmaker, because the sped up and slowed down things, the the jerky motions, the I- intercut things, so so people's motion seems sudden and fast. Yeah, yeah like it's all it's really Spock. cool. Yeah, yeah Spock tries to stop it yep. by uh, busting the computer, which mm. I love, by the way. Spock with the two handed thing yeah. smashing Boom. the computer. <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic. And then uh, it turns on Ilea. Yeah. And it has its sights on Ilea. Ilea! Shocks her. and shocks her again, and she's this really strange movement. She's scared, and she's paralyzed. Yeah. Yep. Paralyzed by this thing and paralyzed with fear. And then the, it's actually the way that Robert Wise shot this, because you have the light and the noise, and it, it's zapping Ilea, and then Ilea disappears. The tr- her tricorder drops. The bridge is silent again. The lighting is normal. Ilea has gone. Uh, Kirk is in shock yeah. and horrified. He picks up her tricorder. And Decker says, This is how I define unwarranted. It's such a brilliant button. It is. To I go agree. right back at Kirk for this. And this is sort of thing's brilliant about the film. Nowhere else... In Star Trek, do you see Kirk questioned like this? Absolutely. Other yeah. than Spock, right? Nowhere else. And nowhere else is that person validated by the script and the story to get over on Kirk than in the motion picture. And I found this to be a genius approach to this whole situation. And, and it's funny. We've talked before in our last episode about weird parallels between motion picture and Wrath of Khan. Yeah, yeah. The, the shuttle journey, the new, the ship that's been redone, the new crew, all that stuff. Well, another one is Kirk making big mistakes. Yes. Kirk makes a big mistake on the warp drive when he pushes and then has his Decker come back at him and say, look, I need to make suggestions. Right. And Kirk makes the big mistake with Khan's, with the Reliant in Khan and has Savick coming back at him and then point and says, you keep quoting those regulations. They're very parallel things that are going on. But yeah. in the case of Wrath of Khan, though, Kirk knew he was wrong. And he says, Savick, you know what? You bring it on. You yeah, on. you were right. You 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 keep challenging me. It was the first time because when you look back on yeah. the original series, you know, the, uh, the, the times when Kirk was challenged 
like, let's say, the ultimate computer with Richard Daystrom, and uh, Kirk is trying to justify his presence on the Enterprise and orders he makes, and Daystrom using the M5 by saying, actually, no, I think this guy would be better on the landing party. And you know what? You don't even belong here at all. I mean... What's the name? Captain, they call him something. Captain... uh, Dunsel. Captain Dunsel. Captain Dunsel. (laughs) Dunsel? What the hell? It's Dunsel. You know, McCoy says, what's Dunsel? He goes, it's a a part that has no 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 constructive purpose. Yeah. Crushing. Ouch. I want to say one thing about this, also the sequence with Aaliyah and the... It's very similar to the opening of Jaws. Uh, Mm. The shark comes, rips, 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 gone, and in peace on the water. It's a great point. It's very, very similar. And those films are, what, two years apart? It's very similar to what that sequence is like. Four years. Four years, yeah. I'm sorry, four years. But no, it's very... Well, and, and this is, you know... One of the great things I learned from my sound teacher in film school, David Bondalevich, who's mm-hmm. just a brilliant guy, was in order to have loud, you must have quiet. Right. And one of the big mistakes is that sometimes films would just overwhelm you with their intensity and volume. And you actually cease to notice the intensity of volume because you have no contrast to it. Right. In both of those cases, you have intense, 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 quiet. Yeah. And the quiet after is part of what makes you realize how intense that actually was. And then the next thing that happens is we're in a tractor beam. Force fields, full remaining strength, total reserve. The ship is under attack. Man all defensive stations. The first reaction is put the engines on full, let's break out of the tractor beam, and we hear very quickly, you will destroy the ship, and then it's I guess we're not gonna break out of the tractor beam. Captain. A maximum phaser strike directly at the beam might weaken it just enough for us to break free. Break free to work, Commander. <laughs> you know, any any show, this is not the first time we would hear these words quite this way, especially when it came time for the next generation. Mm. Any show of resistance would be futile. Be futile. It's interesting Stop, Borg. It's interesting that you say that. <laughs> um, and this is where, again, Kirk is more advanced than Decker because he's like, no, this thing can destroy us anytime it wants. So if we try to resist, we're just going to get destroyed. Right. Our, our only way to survive is to not resist. Is to just see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, Spock is saying what he's feeling is just curiosity, insatiable curiosity. And now we get to this first sort of weird aperture that's opening and closing because yeah. they're going to get drawn inside. Let's take a look. Full sensor scan, Mr. Spock. They can't expect us not to look them over now. Now that we're looking down their throat. And I love Kirk's. Kirk, this is a great line. Now that we're looking down their throat. Right. Now that we got them just where they want us. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. That is a great line. Yeah. yeah. He looks at Decker and they actually have a, yeah. a smile. They share a smile. Which, by the way, one of the things that I do think is missing. I love the, this is how I define unwarranted. Yeah. Decker does not, we do not have real mourning moments for this woman that he was in love with. It really right. isn't there. Well, we right. sort of That's skip point. it. Yeah. It feels like shock. And he's just going forward, and then, then and then we roll right into the next stuff that's right, going to happen. Right, right, right. And I, and I feel like it's a good point. It, it, the, the movie again. This is this thing where I go like, if I you just had right. a little bit more, there's no conversation. There's about no it. thing. There's no moment of him, even if it was just a private moment. Yeah. Is that he he he's a, doing his job on the bridge? This is how I define unwarranted. And he gets in the turbo lift. And he stands there and he puts his hand down and puts his head down and says, "Ilya." Yeah. 
and then we would have it you know right. then we would have the 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 connection to oh my god he just lost the woman he loves mm. and then we or, or or the moment before like if he's having the scenes with her which we're going to get to in a moment and if he she she walks around a corner and he's alone for a moment and he takes a deep breath and then goes to face her again. Like, yeah, you see, you see, so you uh, put on some, the face. Right, you, you see know, some sadness, some these grief. Are those little things that just fill stuff up. They don't take a lot of time, mm. and that's that's you know. Again, I I know I'm hitting this thing over and over again. I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it alone. But these are the things I'm missing in this film. Mm. We realize that there's another internal chamber even farther, and then as we're talking about this, we hear again, intruder, intruder alert. alert, intruder alert. Deck five, Captain, officers' quarters. Um, and we head down. That was good. That was a good checkup. And we head down to the officers' quarters, and there is what looks like some sort of I don't know cosmic shower yep. that Leah is in, and it's glowing red. And we see her silhouette, and it's super super hot in there. Apparently, and by the way, she's naked at mm-hmm. this point. Yes. And then she turns around and says, "You are the Kirk unit. You will listen to me. I've been programmed to observe and record normal functions of the carbon-based units infesting." USS Enterprise. It's scary because, like, Ilea is back, but it's not Ilea. Yeah. And all this carbon unit stuff, that's like right out of Changeling. Why did you kill him? The unit touched my screens. That unit was my chief engineer. And, and she comes out and she is wearing, it basically looks like you're wearing your boyfriend's white button down shirt. Yeah. That is her outfit. <laughs> very sexy, yeah. It's very, and, and, and one of the things about Gene Roddenberry, but really throughout his career and even more so in his later years, he was kind of obsessed about, he liked really scantily clad female like costumes. Like those miniskirts, remember He's the miniskirts? Mini- He's the leg He's- He's a likes guy. And apparently, there are a lot of scripts out there that involved a lot of uh, sex and or sci-fi orgies and things like that. Oh yeah, there was some stuff that was never made (laughs) that Roddenberry wrote. Um, One other thing, by the way, when this movie came out, this is—I just remembered this since our last recording. I, my sister and I had a subscription to Dynamite magazine. Oh, Dynamite. And there was an interview with the actress playing Ilea, whose name just went out. Persis Kembata. And talking about shaving her head and that she really shaved her head. And this was like really cool interview to read in 1979. (laughs) Um, She was afraid it wouldn't go her back. She actually took insurance. Uh, on our on our hair because she was afraid that if she shaved her hair that it wasn't going to grow back. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course it's going to grow back. Um, and uh, McCoy comes in and finds out that this is a machine, that yeah. this is not a human. Where is Lieutenant Ilea? That unit no longer functions. I've been given its form to more readily communicate with the carbon-based units infesting Enterprise. And they ask, why does V'ger, because and she mentions this name, I came from V'ger, why does V'ger travel to the third planet? And her response is to find the creator. Find the creator? Who's? <laughs> and I, lo- I love, I love. this is a great little bit of dialogue. What does V'ger want with the creator? To join with him. To join with the creator. How? V'ger and the creator will become one. And who is the creator? The creator is that. Which created Vijer? Who is Vijer? Vijer is that which seeks the creator. Vijer is that which seeks the creator. <laughs> There's just like, okay. That is, I, I love that. I yeah, love and then that. Like the look that Kirk and Spock is like, ugh, it's like talking to a child. Like talking to a child. Yeah. <clears throat> or talking to a computer. Yeah. But Vijer is a child. And a computer. 
A thorough examination of this probe might provide some insight into those who manufactured it and how to deal with them. And we come up with the idea, well, let's give this an exam and take it to sickbay. And they convince uh, Ilea to do this. And I love the moment where McCoy goes to grab her arm and gets nowhere. Yeah. And then they say to go ahead. Um, and we're in sickbay and we're scanning her and finding out she's filled with microprocessors and whatever. And we hear her talking. She's talking, by the way, in a very robotic computer mixed voice. And in what's Decker. And she looks up at him and says, Decker. But it doesn't have the same effect on the voice. She speaks in a human-sounding voice. And Decker starts to interact with her, and they grab him and head out. They lock the door, and they say, hey, there's some Ilea in there, basically. Right. If you could bring that part of her out, then maybe we'll, we'll be able to get somewhere. The problem is, is that what none of them are realizing is that she's recording everything yeah. that they're saying. And uh, you know when Kirk says, if we can control it, persuade it, use it, and then boom! She through like the door. Through the door. I have recorded enough here. Yeah. You will now assist me further. Suppose like, oh. the Kool Aid thing goes total, right through the wall. Total, total, yeah. total Kool Aid thing. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I love it. We're into classic Star Trek stuff. Yeah. We're into a soul. We're into the Andro. We're we're into the android body in I Mud. We're into the what little girls are made of android. Like, will your mm. will your soul continue if you're transferred into another form? Where you know what is the difference? we're into Landry we're into all these things of computers and souls and humans and what is life and all that stuff classic classic Star Trek ideas Captain's Log Stardate 7414.1 our best estimates place us some four hours from Earth no significant progress thus far reviving Ilea memory patterns within the alien probe this remains our only means of contact with our captor and then we cut to basically a tour of the Enterprise with Spock, McCoy, and Kirk monitoring them on like security cameras. Mm-hmm. And we go into the recreation room where he demonstrates the lamest looking video game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is one of the. But he personally points out all these vessels were called Enterprise. Oh right, and you see that you see the. Uh, you know the old navy, uh, uh, you know uh, ship, and the yeah. you know the aircraft, the aircraft carrier. carrier. You see the space shuttle yeah, Enterprise, space yeah. which had actually never went into space, but. You know, it was still the Enterprise. We go and look at another game. He says, Aaliyah uh, used to enjoy this game, and she nearly always won. And McCoy watching says, oh, good. He's using audio visual association, which I guess he is. <laughs> and he touches the controls, and she touches the controls. And then she, they have they, a moment. They have a moment. And what do we hear? But the love theme plays. Aaliyah's theme. Mm-hmm. And then just as they're starting to connect, and we go, oh, she's coming back. We hear, bong. And you see the light on her, you know, oh, this whole time. Great point. She has a light on her on her throat, yep. at the bottom of her throat. And uh, as she loses the consciousness of Ilea, and you hear that uh, that you know that big you know loud space, boom! Uh, the light comes on stronger. And this device serves no purpose. Get mm, me out of yep. here. And she then she's asking, "What does the Enterprise need with the carbon-based units?" Well, without the carbon-based units, there would be no Enterprise. Yeah. Right. Because what we start to learn, which is exactly what's true in the Changeling, was is that V'ger thinks the Enterprise is the life form, mm. and that the carbon-based uni- units are basically the fleas or the parasites or whatever it is that are living there. And she she also says that when my examination is complete, all carbon units will be reduced to data patterns, almost like they will be assimilated. Mm. Oh, like the Borg. Interesting. Yeah. 
What you might get, <laughs> we're hinting at here, is the theory, much later on, the sort of, you know, revisionist theory is that the planet that V'ger went to oh. and was transformed into the current V'ger was, in fact, the Borg world. Interesting. Ooh, good theory. Yeah. Okay. All right. I buy that. What do you think, John? Yeah, I agree. I think it's certainly possible. That's a great theory. What, what's so cool about this idea is that, of course, there was no Borg in 1979 right, when they wrote Star Trek The Motion Picture. The, and when they invented the Borg in whatever that's 90 Oh, that was or, Q Who. That was 1988. 88. Okay. In 88, they weren't thinking about Star Trek The Motion Picture. But when you can take two bits of uh, continuity and combine them together like this, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah. it's like it's like when they said, you know, when Q first appeared in Encounter at Farpoint, you know, he was in all the other great episodes of Next Gen and DS9, that uh, Q was a, uh, 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 like, remember Trelane from course, The Squire yeah. of Gothos? Yep. A lot of people felt like, you know, Trelane was a Q. Well, and Charlie X, like maybe the people that found Charlie X. The Facians. The Facians, those are the Q. Yeah. Or some connection. Well, and there's because there there's about four or five uber powerful having no bodies characters that we meet at various times in Star Trek. Probably more than that, and you know, who knows? Yeah, we should say an RIP for the actor who played Charlie X who passed away. Oh, That's right, yeah, Robert Walker recording. Jr. Robert yeah. Robert That's Walker another one who passed. Part, and also, sadly, Marina Sirtis' uh, husband, Al well, Maria, and, 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 and Renee Auberjonois. Renee Auberjonois. Oh, Not right. a good week for the for Star, Star Trek, Trek world. Yeah. A lot Crazy. of loss. Crazy. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and the one thing we hear, and this is where Decker's being really smart, is like, well, look, if you want to understand the carbon units, the you're wearing the body, essentially, of the carbon unit named Aaliyah. If you could access some of those memories, maybe you'd understand it better. And mm. she goes, hmm, that's logical. You may proceed. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, where it's the spacesuit storage room, and there's Mr. Spock. There's Spock. And he comes up and Vulcan neck pinches a guy, lets him Finally, down slowly. Finally, see the Vulcan neck pinch. We have to throw that in there somehow. <laughs> love it. Love it. And this is, this is, so here's my question is, do you at this moment, are you going, oh shit, what McCoy said is true and we can't trust Spock? Uh, I don't remember thinking that the mm. first time. I remember thinking. I don't think I thought that. No, I just remember thinking like, what's he doing? But, the, you know, speaking of the Vulcan net pinch, wouldn't it have been funny if Spock would have like, gone to give, like, Ilya the Vulcan net pinch and it didn't that work? That would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Right. That would have been awesome. Nice try, Laoshe. <laughs> <laughs> now we get a scene where Ilya's putting on a headband. It's not, not my favorite scene. In the yeah, movie. it's yeah, weird. Like, do you remember this? And Chapel's there. It's like, is this do it's basically like, this doing anything for you? No. no. Yeah. No, nothing. <laughs> Exactly. But Decker does go like, he does reach her a bit. Help us make direct contact with V'ger. I cannot. This creator V'ger is looking for. What is it? V'ger does not know. Spock is out in space. Okay, now before we get into this next scene. Yes. So Spock goes out into space. Yep. To try and make direct contact with V'ger. Yep. That was not the original scene that was at that point of the movie. Mm. Originally, as it was shot, that it was Kirk and Spock went into V'ger. Oh, wow. There's a, uh, there's a comic book adaptation. Marvel Comics did a, a, a super-sized issue that, that became the first three issues of a, of a new comic series 
that Marvel Comics did based on the adventures of the Enterprise after Star Trek the Motion Picture mm. and only lasted 18 issues. It was pretty bad. Uh, yeah, they, they just uh, it was awful. But um, the sequence that was originally shot and there are photos of the sequence to prove it had Kirk and Spock going into V'ger. But by this point, the movie was in trouble. Most of the visual effects that had been done by the prior company before Trumbull were unusable. So when Douglas Trumbull came back in, or came in at all, to save the movie, one of the things he did was he had the Enterprise relit from the inside so that the lighting that that is shown on the various parts of the ship, like an airplane, yeah. is the lighting that you see in the film. Right. The other thing that he said is when he was trying to fix and save other parts of the movie was the sequence that was shot where Kirk and Spock go into V'ger. He tried. He tried all these different things. He really like broke it down. And he said, this scene is unusable. You cannot use it. Wow. Mm. So they scrapped it. And that is where they went ahead and shot the scene that you are now going to mm. launch into, Steve. Well, that's so because and this is what there's so much chaos in the making of this movie mm. because so the having the great special effects guy tell us that this scene in terms of visuals is not usable. Absolutely. Mm. But that guy shouldn't tell us a story point. Do you know what I mean? Like if mm. the story if you felt the story was better with Kirk and Spock, why didn't you do it again with Kirk and Spock? Mm. Personally, I think it's way better with Spock alone because it goes to these things we've been talking about. Can we trust Spock? Right. Which I don't think is really plain. I, I, I think I think that is a thing you could have pushed a little further to make it a little more iffy about what he's doing. But what he is doing is he's got a cool jetpack thing on, the escape thruster or whatever it is, and we're doing a countdown to shoot off, and he's going to time it for this cool orifice that's opening and closing that he's going to shoot right through. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this moment, suddenly Hura gets a signal from Starfleet to tell us we're almost at Earth, and someone else noticed that a thruster suit is missing. A thruster suit? That's Spock. And we see Spock waiting, hits that countdown, shh, it fires. It's a really great shot of the Enterprise. Oh, it's a it great, gets yeah, smaller. the Enterprise is getting smaller. smaller. Super, yeah. super cool. And he goes through that thing. He dumps the thruster, uh, says, I have successfully penetrated the next chamber. I love the reflections on the visor. Mm-hmm. It all, it's this really all looks, well done. It looks so it good. It holds up so great. Absolutely. Yep. Everything that Spock sees goes by in his visor. You know, when you're looking at Spock's face, it's great. Who, by the way, and it's this is my note literally right here is Nimoy has a great face. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah he's yeah. just so interesting to look at. Stage, he's an incredible stage actor. And we see him entering into the world of this living machine and seeing things that, as he goes on this journey, things that V'ger has seen on his own journey. Right, basically seeing V'ger's memory. Yeah. You know, seeing all the planets, whole moon stars, ga- galaxies. Yeah. And then he sees the uh, the Epsilon 9 space station yep. that V'ger destroyed. Yeah. And you see Ilea. And then you see Ilea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a giant, huge Ilea with the blinking red thing. And Spock goes, I got a mind meld with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Puts out his hands. I think we all know this is not going to go so well. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just an overwhelming flood of images that goes by as Spock screams. And then we cut to Kirk outside the Enterprise in his own spacesuit, waiting for Spock, who comes flying back and Kirk catches him. Um, which I think is also a reshoot or a re... Th- yeah, there was other that stuff was all, here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's a sweet um, moment of friendship in the film. 
This mo- this scene, uh, the next scene might be my favorite scene in the mm. movie, which is Spock is in bed. He's kind of out of it. Kirk is there. McCoy is there. Chapel is there. We're doing some scans. They talk about this tremendous trauma that he must have gone through as yeah. his brain is overwhelmed by all this stuff. And then Spock wakes up and says, Jim, I should have known. Calls him Jim. Yep. And what's so great about this moment and so great about Nimoy is it's obvious from the first second that this is a different Spock. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. He got what he wanted. Yeah. Right. Well, right? And that cold, emotionless Spock that came out of the Colonar that wasn't connecting to the crew of the right. Enterprise, that showed no happiness at seeing his friend Jim, who he just saw captain, who was completely official and emotionless, that guy's gone. But right. now you have Kirk, uh, Spock grabbing Kirk's hand like a brother, yeah. saying this simple feeling is beyond Vidra's comprehension. Yep. I love the way it is. The simple feeling is beyond Vidra's. Like he's so in a deeper, even deeper, lower register than usual because he is like on some extra level of uh, understanding of what's happening. And I, I love that. Well, and he starts to laugh. Yeah, yeah, right. He laughs. Yeah, sm- he laughs. Well, you can count on your hand how many times Spock's laughed in the entire Star Trek series. So here's what I here's here's what I think is that I so in my opinion, Spock is still the greatest character in all of Star Trek, and mm-hmm. that yeah. what's so interesting about him and about this movie and this scene is to me this is the scene where Spock finds peace. Like this yeah. moment, because we we meet him, we meet him at the very beginning. He has emotions; they haven't quite figured him out yet. And then we meet him as the logical person. And then by the time we get to a mock time, and we see his relationship with Jim and this friendship build over time. Yeah. And then we get to this moment where he goes, "Okay, I, for whatever reason, I'm going to get rid of all that." And at this moment, I think he finds peace between the human half and the Vulcan half. And what we see going forward is in, in is that we see it in his friendship in Khan. Yeah. We see it even as he comes back after losing, you know, after all of Khan and all that stuff and in the fourth movie. And then even in the little bits that we see him later on in Next Generation and stuff, is this person who has a sense of humor, who has true wisdom, mm. who has real compassion and deep feeling for people and is comfortable with all of that. Well, and maybe he glimpsed the possibility of what his life would be like without emotion because Vidra is essentially a robot without emotion. Absolutely. And so this is being, seeing what that life would be like. He's now at peace knowing what he could have been and he's comfortable choosing what he wants to be, what he is. Well, and Spock is such a particularly, you know, what we see of him going for, he's such a non judgmental character. Mm. He's such a compassionate character in the way that his dad. Is not right. You know, Vulcans are really cool in a lot of ways, but they do not give warm hugs. You know what I mean? They tell it like it is. Yeah, yeah. You vouched for me. (laughs) Vouched. Oh, Star Trek Six. That's still my favorite. Should have trusted me. That's that moment of friendship. It's the first time Uh that it breaks since this moment to six. It's the first time that it really breaks. Well, except in that moment. Spock is really being his true friend. Yes, right. Spock, Spock is doing, he's like, I I understand you so well that I need to actually hurt you and in your mind betray you uh-huh. in order to help you, hmm. you know? Um, so I think this is a great scene. And, and and what we get to is, is is I think as you said, is that V'ger needs something. Yeah. He is, he, he, he is asking, again, science fiction asking fundamental questions. It's asking questions. What questions? Is this all that I am? 
Is there nothing more? You know, a machine planet sending a machine to Earth. Yeah. yeah. Looking for its creator. Yeah. It's incredible. Like yeah, the scope of it. Even well, though it did happen, but that's okay. Well, and <laughs> and you know, what are the you know, these are basic fundamental questions. Why do we seek what do we seek in religion? We seek meaning. Yeah. You know, so Viger is seeking his creator in the same way that we seek after whatever religious figure you might follow to find meaning for life. And that the quest, the the end of that quest, for most of us, we don't actually, there's no one there to give us an answer. Yeah. You know, at least not in this life. And for, and for a film that, that people argue didn't feel like Star Trek, the fact is it was very much like Star Trek because Star Trek was so different from anything else, especially Star Wars, because Star Trek was more philosophical, was more provocative. It stirred conversation. Uh, it was about something much, much deeper. And this is this is the, the shining example from the motion picture of why. Right. Absolutely. Uh, we're back on the bridge, and uh, V'ger is moving into position around Earth. And this is this moment you said before where he's sending a radio signal in binary code. A simple binary code transmitted by carrier wave signal radio and they're sitting there and decker says to uh kirk which i like he calls him jim at this moment too he says vijer expects an answer an answer i don't know the question <laughs> and ilea is there and says the creator has not responded and there's vijer launches a whole bunch of scary satellites on earth which are basically super powerful versions of the weapons that destroyed the klingons and epsilon 9 and attacked the enterprise mm. um the all same the things that hit us yeah all the right. planetary offenses have gone down the creator has not answered the carbon unit infestation is to be removed from the creator's planet why you infest Enterprise. You interfere with the creator in the same manner. And Kirk goes in and tries to talk to V'ger. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah, he's like, V'ger, V'ger. And Spock says, V'ger is a child. I suggest you treat her as such. And I love McCoy's response. Spock, this child is about to wipe out every living thing on Earth. Now, what do you suggest we do? Spank it. <laughs> That's uh, very McCoy. No, yeah. we're we're in full Star Trek stuff right now. Um, this is exactly the moment where Spock tells Kirk in Wrath of Khan that his tactics represent two dimensional thinking. Yeah, is that is that Kirk's going to execute the plan, but Spock is the person that gives him the key. Yeah, this is why he needs him. You know, um, and Kirk thinks, and then <laughs> this is full Kirk. This is we're back to the Corbinite. This is the bluffer. This is yeah, the, poker the Corbinite player. maneuver, right? The carbon units know why the creator has not responded. Disclose the information. Not until Vija withdraws the devices orbiting the third planet. And this is the same guy that did, you know, mental jujitsu on, on Nomad in the Changeling. Mm. Uh, and then uh, this next moment is fascinating. Is he says, clear the bridge. Yeah. And everyone goes, huh? Yeah. What do you mean? And Vija's getting mad. He just gives the Enterprise a shake. Yeah, yeah, the Enterprise is jolting back and forth, yeah. And lightning is hitting us, and McCoy says, Your child is having a tantrum, Mr. Spock. Tantrum, Mr. Spock. <laughs> and Kirk's not answering, and V'ger is pushing. V'ger needs the information. That V'ger must withdraw all the orbiting devices. V'ger will comply. Kirk's bluff has worked. Yeah. At least for a moment. 
It learns fast, doesn't it? Yeah, because V'ger's still ready to destroy him, and Kirk says, "Well, we got to destroy. We got to talk to V'ger in person." Right. Okay. Suddenly, the aperture opens. Yep. The Enterprise is going through. Uh, forward motion, slower, Captain. Forward motion, stop. Hmm. And all you see on the view screen is this. You can't see what's at the center, but there's this light beaming off into infinity. Yep. Yep. V'ger. And, and there's an atmosphere and gravity is suddenly there. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to go outside and meet V'ger, whatever that is. Yeah. And at first he says, Decker, he wants Decker to have the con. And Decker says, can I go with you? And he goes, yeah. Yeah. Gives Sulu the con and they head out. And then we have a shot, which is unlike almost any shot ever in Star Trek. I love the scene. I love the shot where yeah. they, they, they appear on the primer, on the top of the primary hall of the Enterprise and they walk over to the center of where V'ger is. It's so great because you look at it for a while and at first you're like, I don't understand what's happening. And then you're like, wait, is that them? Because it's very small. And like, oh, they're walking on top of the Enterprise. Walking on top of the Enterprise. And, you know, again, the score, Jerry Goldsmith, he's blending Ilea's theme with V'ger's theme. Mm. With 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 me, uh, just sort of this this wonder, like where are they going? And they yeah. they caught they 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 get to where V'ger is positioned, and they walk up. They look, and you look in the center and and see this see this something, see this this object that does not look like the rest of this vast giant ship. Yeah. And Ilea points to it and says, V'ger. And they walk down, and they're walking around it. And, you know, it's clearly a space probe from yeah. the United yeah. States. <laughs> I, I really believe that I remember my emotion when this happened. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't really know, and maybe I'm reconstructing it, but I remember Kirk walking up to that plaque on the side of V'ger and saying, V'ger, and we see V and then some dark stuff and then ger yeah, and then it's a, it's a it's like a, a dirt it's corroded you know, and it's corroded it's a it's a it's yeah, yeah. and he, he says v g e r feature and then he's trying to wipe away and it says v-o-y-a-g-e-r voyager and it's voyager six and that, that and was i massive. really think that i remember and maybe it's because i had seen the changeling over and over and over again at mm. six o'clock on channel you know two yeah. but 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 like I just remember going, oh, it's, and it all, it's one of those moments where it all clicks together. And of course, the Voyagers, there's no Voyager 6, but there's one and two, which were real uh, satellites, yeah. uh, probes sent out into space in the late 70s. It's a real thing. Oh, thank you. So, so Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were launched at the same time to do a tour yeah. of the outer planets because the positioning of the planets were such that they could use the gravity. Uh, from one planet and 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 slingshot it onto the next one. So when Voyager one and Voyager two slingshot it around Jupiter, it sped them up to go to Saturn. And then I think Voyager one uh, didn't. Uh, no, Voyager two wasn't able to to go all the way. Right. But then Voyager one went from Saturn to uh, Uranus and Uranus to Neptune, mm. and Pluto was not in the, on the on its orbit. You know, we didn't get to Pluto until just a couple of years ago. But when we when Voyager 1 finally reached the end of the solar system a few years ago. And the solar system didn't end where Pluto is. The solar system ends when the heliosphere is no right. more. Yeah. And the heliosphere is this like bubble around the solar system. And the last remnants of the sun 
the last atoms from the sun are no longer detected, that's when interstellar space truly begins. Yeah. So when Voyager 1 crossed over into the crossed uh, went through the heliosphere and actually crossed the boundary to where it ended up into true interstellar space. When I read that on the LA Times and on space.com, yeah. the first thing I thought of is I wonder how long till it <laughs> finds the machine planet and comes back to Earth as feature. That's what I thought of. Well, all it has to do is go through a black hole, which is what Decker says happened to the Voyager 6, yeah. that it disappeared. And I love his lines. He says, Voyager 6 disappeared to what they used to call a black hole. It must have emerged on the far side of the galaxy and fell into the machine planet's gravitational field. The machine inhabitants found it to be one of their own kind, primitive, yet kindred. They discovered a simple 20th century programming. Collect all data possible. Learn all that is learnable. Return that information to its creator. And so all V'ger is trying to do is execute its original programming created by some NASA scientists in the 1980s, probably. Mm. But it's at this point when they realize that V'ger is from NASA and they realize it's a binary uh, form of communication that Voyager is trying to do is because that was what Voyager, well, Voyager 1 and 2 and eventually 6 all used. So, you know, this is, you know, Kirk's like getting the bridge crew involved. He reaches out to Uhura and Sulu. Enterprise. Order up the ship's computer library records. On the late 20th century NASA probe Voyager 6, specifically, we want the old NASA code signal that instructs the probe to transmit its data and fast over a fast. Sir. We send it to V'ger and it doesn't work. Right. V'ger does not respond because he's fried his own little antenna lead to not hear it. I, I love this moment where the four of them, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Decker, have a powwow. And Spock goes, V'ger must evolve. V'ger must evolve. Its knowledge has reached the limits of this universe and it must evolve. What it requires of its God, Doctor, is the answer to its question. Is there nothing more? You know, and McCoy says, what more is there than the universe? Other dimensions, higher levels of being. The existence of which cannot be proven logically. Therefore, V'ger is incapable of believing in them. What V'ger needs in order to evolve is a human quality. Our capacity to leap beyond logic. And basically, you know, V'ger has only, can only go so far because it's missing, it's missing emotion. Yeah. Well, and this is what Ilya says is V'ger must join with the creator. Right. And this is what Spock said, too, earlier to uh, Kirk a few minutes ago. V'ger can't understand this. Right. The grasping of the hands, the friendship, human emotion is what it's it's what the, it's the last piece of information that it cannot process. Well, and the other thing that's happened, which isn't really in the movie, but is in the movie, which is that V'ger would not accept that the carbon-based units were anything other than infestations on the consciousness mm. that was the Enterprise. But in this moment, when it burns its own antenna lead, and once it has accepted that humans, in fact, are the creator. it We, we don't really say it, but like it has gone... V'ger has had a total shift in its understanding of the universe that happened like in one second yeah. as they started to get the response from the carbon-based units. And now it's like, I need to join with the creator. Right. Um, you mean this machine wants to physically join with a human? Is that possible? 
And then Decker says, Let's find out. So Decker walks over to Voyager to uh, put the uh, wires back together and put the code in. And Kirk goes after Decker, and Ilya pushes his <laughs> yep. ass backwards. Yes, yeah. Kirk is not getting the girl. Kirk is not welcome. Sense. It's such a unique, unique uh, story in Star Trek that yeah. Kirk isn't the hero. Kirk isn't the one who ends up yep. with the girl. Kirk isn't the one who figures it out. It's just so uh, incredible in its authenticity and uniqueness, and that's what. That's why when people push back on this film, I don't understand because I think it's such a fantastically interesting new approach to Star Trek. Completely agree. And I think in this moment, I won't say it's 2001, but this is where something totally not understandable Mm. is happening on the screen, which is Decker stands there and and. It, oh, and I, we should say, we should say, in this moment before... What, what he says what is, he says. you know, when Kirk says, Deckard, don't do this, and De- Deckard says back to Kirk, Jim, I want this. As much as you wanted the Enterprise, I want this. It's a, it's a great, great moment. But let me ask you, Steve, because you've been talking about missing scenes, missing stuff, stuff you need more of. When does Decker make this decision, and why? I totally agree. I don't. Why? I don't think we've. I, this is where I go. I love this moment. Yeah. But I wish we built it a little. That's why having his reaction to the loss of Ilya stronger right. would have helped. Having him maybe see how Kirk is commanding the Enterprise and mm-hmm. maybe going, oh, I wasn't going to be as good a captain. Oh, but you know what? You understand? Like, there's all and there all isn't, the seeds are there. Exactly. There isn't a Decker going. I need to know. Yeah. Right. It's Spock who's the one going off and running off with the suit to try to understand with the consciousness. It isn't Decker. Decker in this moment, it's it's. I don't know. I don't want to say clumsy, but it's it's a love moment and it's beautiful. But there's that you don't sense that there's a foundation to it, a reason. And there, there's also that's a really good point. Like, like there should have been something along the way, especially by the third act, where Decker, Decker either says or or reacts in a way yeah. where he realizes. Now, you know what? The right guy got the job, the commanding enterprise. Well, right. Well, well, or imagine yeah. this. Imagine this. So so, so in, in really good screenwriting, you always want to do multiple things in a scene. You never want to do just one thing. Right. So we have the scene where he's giving Ilya the tour of the enterprise in order to spark her memories. But what we're not – and all he's doing is doing that. But what we're not having is the guy whose woman he loves has just died, who's now with the woman he loves and dealing with the emotion of his mourning and his loss. What if there was a moment in trying to spark her memory that he said, the, what you look like, there was a time when we were on your planet, we were on Delta, and we talked about the future. Do you remember that? Mm. Uh, and she says, no, I don't remember that. And he said, well, you said you wanted this. And I said I wanted that. And then she finishes his sentence and does remember some of it. Mm. And then he's starting to feel, and we reveal something about his character. Like he said, the thing that I always wanted, or she says, the thing that you said you always wanted was to go somewhere no one's ever been. That she that, that she expresses some seed yeah. of who Decker is in this scene that we learn something about him that leads him to when he says, as much as you want the Enterprise, I want this, that we find out, oh, that's actually the thing that he wanted that was right. connected to his relationship to Ilea. And, th- and this is what I mean. It's like, again, this I, I think the special effects sequences are great, but the time you take up with that is time you don't have to do these things. I think there are unspoken moments between them. And you can sense it from the acting that Stephen yeah, Collins do and Persis Kambata do. But you're right. It's not in the script. But it's there in the yeah. looks, in the acting. and the, There's levels complexity between yeah. both of them going on. 
but this but, moment but, happens. But what happened? And what happens next? With him, lights start to yeah. spark. He's going through something that seems euphoric and unknowable mm-hmm. and amazing. And she moves to him, and they're together in the swirling, glowing. The creator is joining with each other. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll just reveal a small thing about my 11 year old self. <laughs> This seemed really sexy to me in some yeah, way. It's, it's, totally, it's, this is like I don't. This is like weird alien sex or something. Oh yeah, it's it's sublime. Yeah, it's a it's it's a beautiful rapturous thing. It, yeah, it it, it it transcends like a physical uh, connection, and as most a, love does, it's most a real love. well, absolutely. I mean, that's a good point. And you know, again, Jerry Goldsmith, his score, it's great. During this is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. So so you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are just watching in amazement. And and with disbelief of what they're witnessing, and the 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 lights are sort of a uh, you know coming off of a Decker and Ilea, and then at one point the light just explodes and expands, yeah, and expands yeah. slowly, and you know Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are like we better get the hell out. It's of here. basically get out of our room. Well, right, but, right, totally, yeah, totally I mean, is, get out of the room. Well, what I like about it too, particularly particularly the way you just said that yeah. is. They have to pull Kirk away. Oh, yeah, because Kirk, of course, would want to watch it. <laughs> he's, totally, he's a pervert, <laughs> that Kirk. He totally is. I but, mean, but you know, so so Spock and McCoy run, and Kirk runs. But then, he, but then you know, if you, if you watch this on a, on a big enough, because for many years I didn't notice this because it was cropped. But at one point when the, the lights are expanding and they envelop the actual Voyager spacecraft, you know, you see Kirk run back yes to see if decker is still there that he could save him and he's gone yeah. mm-hmm. and then he like they get out of there and then the the light is like shooting off into deep space yeah. and then i i don't know this is some sort of a i want to say explosion and yeah. it's uh it's enveloping the whole screen and the uh the the score the booming score by jerry goldsmith and they hear the boom and out of the light comes the enterprise That shot of the Enterprise emerging out of the light is awesome. It's fantastic. There's nothing like it. There's yeah. nothing like it. I don't care just by all the other sci-fi movies at the time, like Star Wars and Close Encounters and The Black Hole, uh, but then or Alien. But it just there's no other Star Trek movie like Star Trek the Motion Picture. Exactly. And look, I'm gonna walk a line here. What did I say about I literally was gonna just bring up the same thing. What did I say about hundred percent the ship coming out is Kirk's erection? Him going into the hole of VJ, which is this, it's a pulsating hole. That it's a sex thing. Well, the and, whole and, thing and there's is an wow. orgasm. It's an orgasm, this explosion of light and, and coming the out comes the shoots out. Right. Totally. Oh it's, my God. It's shot, it's load, and it's leaving. Wow. It's, right. That's exactly what's happened here. All right. I, Look, I see that. Yeah. I do see that. The, the, not the, any way to put it down or make it coarse or the crass. Mo- the motion picture might have been originally released with a G rating, but this, <laughs> this podcast is not. This is R. <laughs> <clears throat> Absolutely. We're back on the bridge and. McCoy says, Spock, did we just see the beginning of a new life form? There you go. Yeah. To put the nail on the head. Yeah. Or something. Um, Ew. And uh, and they we talked about this is the next step in, in our evolution. Uh, and I love McCoy. It's been a long time since I delivered a baby. We got this one off to a good start. Yeah. Um, but but the, the, the beauty of this particular scene now, so... Deckard and Ilea have have joined. Voyager, Voyager is 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 destroyed. Earth is saved, and Spock is at peace. The tension that existed between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, particularly 
uh, yeah. Kirk and McCoy and Spock is gone. And and the entire journey of this relationship has reached a point where the three of them are back to where they were on the five year mission. Yeah. Like they are they are comfortable with yep. each other again. You know, Kirk feels much more comfortable with the Enterprise. They saved the day. This was supposed to be the beginning of the next five year mission of this right. crew on the Enterprise. This was the only voyage that we saw. You know, when Kirk says we can have you back on when Scotty says we can have you back on Vulcan uh, in a week or mm. says, now my task on Vulcan is completed. Uh, uh, Captain, uh, what course? And he goes, uh, Out there. That away. You know, that that's the voyage. I wanted to see what was going to happen sure. next. Sure, me know? too. Me I wanted too. to see what was going to happen next. I mean, mm-hmm. we did when Wrath of Khan, but that was different. Yeah. But to to have a whole other TV series, Phase 2, based on these adventures of the Enterprise, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. You know, there was a time when... The original series crew was all we had. Yeah. There was a time when the Enterprise was, and it still is, but there was a time when it was special because it was always the only ship in the quadrant. Right. It was the only thing that stands in the way of, of, of this thing uh, attacking the Earth. Uh, the Enterprise felt special. And in the later shows, especially the, the newer show, mm. there's so many freaking starships around. None of them feel special. Right. You know, the Enterprise was special. It's the freaking Enterprise. And whenever people reference Star Trek, they don't reference Deep Space Nine. They don't reference Voyager. They reference the original series Mm. because it was and still is the the, the best. It is the gold standard of Star Trek. It's what Star Trek is all about. Um, Well, I'll say something that might sound really strange. Uh, because I love the movies, or I love I love many of the movies. Uh, some of the greatest moments in the history of Star Trek were in the movies. But I actually think, conceptually, Star Trek is better as a TV show. Uh, agreed. Because it's it's the continuing nature of we're with these people, and the thing that has to happen on movies is on movies you have to make it really big. Because you have to earn the movie. And this is the same thing I think that Marvel Comics has navigated, or Marvel Entertainment has navigated really, really well, is the idea of being able to not make everything so cataclysmic that you aren't wanting to come back and watch the characters evolve to the next level. And that Star Trek, the we're going to go on a weekly adventure to do a thing, allows Star Trek to explore so many different ideas and environments. It's just built for that in a way that the that the movies, it's you know, some of the movies are amazing and some of the movies less good. Um, I want to go back and get one other thing as we're getting to the end of the, is, yeah. at the end of the film, is that thematically what I really, really like is Kirk talks about V'ger at the end. He says, I think we gave it the ability to create its own sense of purpose out of our own human weaknesses and the drive that compels us to overcome them. I think that is such a, that is such a Star Trek idea. The idea of driving forward, the idea of the importance of humanity. And this is something I said last episode, but this is where it really all comes together is this is what Spock had to go through. What V'ger has to go through and what Spock has to go through, the idea of combining the human with the logical, the emotion, the need, the driving purpose with the intelligence, 
that is where that is how Spock has gotten to his new place, and that's where Vidra has gone yeah. in his new place. And I think I have criticisms of the script in somewhere areas, but thematically, I think this is totally on point and consistent in what it's trying to do. And, and also, you know that that you have you have the whole crew coming together on the bridge yeah. as a coda. Like, what did we learn? Right. You know, I yeah. love those moments like uh, uh, at the end of Errand of Mercy when uh, Kirk realizes the power of the Organians. Right. Uh, or, and, that, and that he was wrong. It's another he that wrong. he was wrong. Yeah, yeah. Or or at the, at the end of Arena when he realizes that the uh, the uh, um, the Metrons uh, might come, come to us in a, a thousand years, you know, when we're ready. Uh, yep. That'll give us a little time. I mean, you know, I love those moments. Like at the end of The Empath from the third season with the empath it's a creepy episode i i love that episode but i guess in the the star trek universe the fans are very mixed on it there are fans who really mm. hate the empath i love that episode i think it's a i like it, it I, but it was very upsetting to me well it's disturbing yeah, it's a disturbing the, the way the vians are torturing uh jam and, and mccoy especially mccoy but you know when they're back on the on the bridge of the enterprise after uh the vians have saved Gem's world and put it somewhere else so the Nova doesn't destroy it. And Kirk is wondering, I wonder if somewhere out in the universe we come across Gem's world. And Scotty says this beautiful thing, you know. From what little you've told me, I would say that she was a pearl of great price. What, Scott? Do you not know the story of the merchant? The merchant, who when he found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. It was that moment that that actually when I saw the motion picture, I rem- it reminded me of the end of The Empath where they were like, what did we learn here? Like, what did we learn? What did we do? What impact did we make more than just saving the earth? You know, how did we learn? How did we better come one step closer to being a little a little better as, as a human, as a human species? I would add just one small thing, which is, to me, where Star Trek is at its best, it's not just what did we learn, although it totally, totally is. It's what does that make me think? How does that make me examine my own life and our world, you know, about my own human emotions and how I relate to them and my own weaknesses and how I drive forward and my own empathy or my own sense of how I was wrong or our own politics or all those things. Right. Like it makes you go like, oh, wait, maybe there's a different way to do this. Maybe we can improve. And that's the thing that just that's why I keep coming back to Star Trek. It's the preclude it's that's and that's why I think it always separates it from me from Star Wars. Like Star Wars is the battle of good and evil. Right. And what you learn from that and how close you can come to being evil or how much effort it takes to become good and what that value brings to your life. This is about the human condition, always. Yeah. The questioning, the self analysis, the um uh, re examination of what you are as a human being. And that's why Star Trek works so well as you get older because those episodes take all kinds of different forms in your life as you get older when you rewatch them depending on what you've experienced in your world. I, I, I never... I, I agree with you completely, John, because I never thought in a million years that I would relate to the Wrath of Khan. Right. I right. mean, I am as right. old... I am as old as Kirk was in The Wrath of Khan. Brother, yes. And I have 
seriously going through a massive midlife crisis as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) And I never thought in a million years, like I remember when I saw it in 1982, I'm like, what the hell is a midlife crisis? How do you... Like what the hell does that mean? Yeah, and I'm like, that's Whoa, just that's just silly. There you yeah. go. Oh yeah, I I get it now. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. but you're right. You know, like I feel like in some ways, child, like what you just said, I feel like there are certain aspects of Star Trek that that I still to this day am growing into. Yeah, because yeah. they they uh they there were things I didn't understand back then when I was a kid, but I I sure get it now. Like the conscience of the king, like I never realized that Kirk was Hamlet. You know, right. in that episode. But that's just, that's why Star Trek endures, especially yeah. that crew and that show. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we kind of come across our final thoughts yeah. at this point is that for me, and, and I guess maybe this is what true love is on some level, is that you don't go, you don't fall in love because someone is perfect. No, no, none of us are. Is that true love is where you fall in love and you love the flaws. Mm-hmm. You know, is that I love bad episodes of Star Trek, you know? Oh, yeah. And and so I'm not a rational, I'm a very rational person, but I'm not actually rational in my love for Star Trek. And the reason is, is because it speaks to something that's really deep inside me and has been deep inside me since I was a little kid whenever I watched that first episode. Mm. And that when I keep coming back, even though I can see the things that are flaws, even though in this movie, I've talked extensively about things that I think could have been done better in this film. I still love the film. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And and that's the thing that I, I will always permeate for me with Star Trek is that there the worst episode of Star Trek, the original series, I will take over the best episode of any other series of Star Trek. Completely agree. Because uh, that's my crew. That's my crew. Sure. And even in their bad situation, I'm enjoying it. So people may hate this movie or not like this movie, push back on this movie. I think this is an incredible movie to experience this crew through because it's such a different way to experience this crew than we've ever seen before and will ever see again afterwards. There have now been 13 Star Trek feature films. Yeah. 13 from between 1979 and 2016. And and we're getting uh, we're getting another another film right. with the uh, the Kelvin timeline. Yeah. Uh which uh, which I'm very excited about cuz I love that cast. Mm. But all those films like the next gen films, the next generation films, the four of them, they kind of feel from the same cloth. The the uh, uh, Star Trek's two through six feel like they're cut from the same cloth. Even mm. Star Trek five, it still feels like the the vibe, the relationships. Right. Certainly, the uniforms are very similar. I mean, you have Star Trek's two, three, and four, which are like a trilogy unto themselves. Yeah. But no Star Trek movie is like the motion picture that's 100 no true. Yep. no star trek film has aged as well as star trek the motion picture Agreed. certainly visually and in terms of effects yeah i 100 percent agree yeah, yeah, yeah. but also also cerebral the the, the intellectually yeah. yep. thematic like, nature this is this this is a, a a movie that that even 40 years later yeah. there's still a massive intelligence to wrap your head around it doesn't feel none of it feels dated, especially with Voyagers one and two crossing over into interstellar right. space. I, it's conceivable that they could get picked up by a yeah. massive, huge life form and come back. <laughs> Who knows? I can say that this was the my most favorite time watching the movie. My most favorite experience wa- watching this movie was in preparation for this wow. uh, for this cool. podcast because of what I've gone through in my life and the age I'm at in my life. There, I grabbed so much more of what was happening in this film than when I was 14 or 15 or 16. So, yeah. Well, and I certainly hope for all of you listening out there that this, that you'll go back, 
watch Star Trek The Motion Picture again, and maybe either it's before this podcast or you've already listened to it, and I hope that this was your best time experiencing mm. this film, and as always, we want to hear what you think, so uh, take a search for us on Facebook, just search for The Cinephiles. We now have a Twitter and Instagram feed for the podcast itself. The Twitter feed is at Cine-Files, and the Instagram feed is the Cinephiles, is Cinephiles Podcast. So please uh, follow those and send us your comments there. You can subscribe to the show on YouTube, on iTunes. We need your reviews on iTunes. We need your comments on YouTube. As always, you can uh, support the show by going to patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. You can buy Star Trek The Motion Picture on cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, you can do so at SR Morris on Twitter at SR Morris one on Instagram. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm very happy everything that's happening for the Twitter and the Instagram for the Cinephiles. Thanks to Luke. Luke Leeson. Luke yes, Leeson thank, for thank doing that so for us. so much for all your help. And thank you also to our favorite Star Trek guest. Absolutely. Uh, if people wanted to reach you, how would they go about doing well, that? Well, just uh, shoot me a tweet at Movie Mance, and that is with a TZ. I'm on, also on Instagram at Movie Mance. And, you know, please uh, please let me know what you think of these last two episodes of The Cinephiles. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and this is now, I guess, technically my eighth episode yep. uh, with you. We and have to get you a robe. I, yeah, like I, an this, SNL. At least we a t-shirt. A at least give me a t-shirt, because you <laughs> know need, I'll wear the t-shirt. We need some Cinephiles t-shirts. But, we have it. I, yeah, you're right. I said this. I said this the last time. I'm going to say it again, and I really mean this. That I have never enjoyed geeking out, deep diving into a film, having a, a really informed, passionate conversation about movies anywhere like I do talking to you two. Fine. Fellas, I mean it. Well, that means a lot. It's yeah. the truth. It's always a pleasure to have you here, yeah. and I think that's it for this week, and we will see you next time for another great film on The Cinephiles. 